Greetings, dear listeners. A real treat for you today. We had Matt Continetti on the pod this week to talk about his new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. It's a terrific work of history by one of America's smartest conservative writers, balanced, fair, introspective, and insightful. Shadi and I start the conversation talking about the role of ideas in politics and end up dwelling on the oversized role that foreign policy played in shaping the course of the right in America. In the bonus episode, for paying members only, we go deeper into the question of populism with Matt. Is, Shadi asks, the Republican Party still committed to democracy? As always, thank you for your support. On to the show. Matt, welcome. Um, obviously, we're here to discuss uh, your new book, uh, but uh, you know much more than the new book. Uh, I, I think there's just a lot of overlap uh, and disagreement and discussion to be had, and the sort of like Venn diagram between where like me, you, and Shadi come down on things. But let's, I guess, <laughs> get started on on just the question of. Um, I think the, the 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 thing that struck me most about the book is the uh, the role of ideas, and I think how how strongly you feel that the role of ideas uh, is important to to politics, if if that's correct. Um, why, how how come you you chose to write the book in the way you did uh, at this at this current moment? What were you trying to sort of get at um, in this excavation of the conservative movement? Well, uh, one of the things I wanted to communicate was that a lot of the debates that are currently roiling the American right are not new. And in fact, uh, they have precedence uh, throughout uh, the past hundred years. And um, when you when you go back into the, the record and you look at the, the way that these debates over America's role in the world or um, over um, what attitude uh, the right should take toward authority and uh, centralized power, um, you begin to also to see the connection between ideas as expressed in the pages of little magazines uh, and public policy as enacted by elected officials. And so the book uh, is really, for me, a synthesis of intellectual history and political history, showing the ways in which intellectuals uh, responded to political events, uh, but also the ways in which politicians interacted with intellectuals uh, in order to um, advance agendas. And then more recently, the ways in which kind of the intellectuals in Washington, D.C. became detached from the broader mo movement um, that they had thought they were uh, guiding and directing. Is it fair to say that you're one of those intellectuals, maybe just for people who aren't familiar with you, how are you coming at this in terms of your own personal and ideological orientation? I, I have to say I was very impressed by just how fair you were in discussing all these competing ideas within the American right. You try to be fair to every side and give them their due, even if you probably deep down don't like them. But ultimately <laughs> you are, <laughs> ultimately, I mean, you're a protagonist in this, I don't wanna say war because it's not quite a war. You guys are still all together under what we call the right. Um, but there is a lot of conflict and tension internally and you obviously want to see an outcome, which you get to towards the end of the book. So maybe just lay mm -hmm. that out for us, how you sort of play this role as both um, a researcher, but also as someone who's invested in the outcome. Sure. Oh, well, um, I guess the way to start to answer that question would be um, to say that, you know, I've been in Washington now for 20 years, and uh, all of that time has been spent uh, inside uh, the American right and uh, working for institutions uh, associated with uh, the conservative movement. Uh, my first job after I graduated from college was at the Weekly Standard magazine. Uh, eventually, I rose to the position of opinion editor there. That meant that I wrote the editorials uh, most weeks. Um, I then started my own publication, The Washington Free Beacon, which is a uh, kind of conservative investigative journalism outfit. 
And then in 2019, I moved to the American Enterprise Institute, where I work uh, today as a senior fellow, mainly because I was pursuing the question of how the American right arrived at um, the 2016 election, the rise of Donald Trump. So um, I, my views are made clear uh, regularly um, uh, in my writing uh, for the Washington Free Beacon, for National Review, for Commentary Magazine, and for many other publications. When I look at this book, uh, I want to see a work of scholarship uh, more than polemic. And so uh, I tried to investigate that question of how did the American right arrive at 2016? Where is it in 2020 and where might it go tomorrow uh, from uh, as a dispassionate and detached a perspective as possible? And as you mentioned, uh, toward the end, I do kind of, you know, lift the curtain up a little bit and provi provide readers a view of where I think the American right uh, should uh, turn. Um, but uh, for me, it was more teasing out this ongoing relationship uh, between um, elites, intellectuals, uh, elected officials, policy analysts, and the grassroots, the populists, um, who uh, are many in number and have become more and more influential in Republican politics over the last 15 years. But so I guess that gets back to the what I was sort of found most striking about the book, um, but I think Shadi put his finger on it. Would you say, I mean, I think the book is incredibly fair and incredibly rich in excavating this history. I, I, I came away actually uh, much improved. You know, I, I, I knew the history in very broad strokes, but not in such detail. And, and the, the sort of kaleidoscope of personalities, and even as they pop up today, you know, the, the, the heritage is, 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 really, is really spectacular to sort of uh, behold. But is it fair to say, though, that, that um, as you know, while you're excavating this, you have a belief in, in the power of ideas. Even when you were answering the, the, the previous question to me, you said, you know, how, how the, the intellectuals and the elites um, who thought they were the controlling, who thought they were the controlling the movement and shaping the movement sort of lost control of it. In reading the book, I, I sort of came away with, with a, a different appreciation than I feel that maybe you're coming from, which is, the the role of ideas in politics um, is 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 unbalanced from what we intellectuals like to think it is in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you say that, Demir, um, it strikes me that um, there's ideas and the role of ideas in history, and I do think ideas play a significant role in history, um, mainly because ideas are what you know. Uh, motivate many people in the political arena. Um, th there's also events. And I guess uh, maybe one other theme of my book is the role that events play, the, uh, the contingency of history, the almost accidental nature of it, um, that these um, elections happen, uh, uh, wars happen, scandals happen, um, things don't go as planned, uh, the, pre the, the preparations don't match uh, the endeavor, and the whole landscape is overturned. So um, in that competition between ideas and events, uh, events may matter more uh, by giving ideas an opening uh, to see themselves expressed. And just uh, the example I'll give is um, the career of Ronald Reagan, where um, you know most histories of the American right really center on Reagan. Mine takes a different tack and tries to just include him as one character among many. And you know, one of the lessons I draw from that narrative is uh, Reagan wasn't inevitable. Uh, Reagan ran uh, for president in 1976. He challenged the incumbent Gerald Ford. He uh, was on the verge of withdrawing from the race when a kind of a last ditch effort by uh, Jesse Helms in North Carolina, salvaged his uh, candidacy there. He then goes on um, on a, quite a, a winning streak and is able to enter the 1976 GOP convention uh, competitive for the nomination. 
it eventually does go to Ford, of course. And uh, there's a real question about, is that the end of Ronald Reagan's career? Um, he was, uh, by that point, you know, 66 years old. Um, so uh, it was really the, the ensuing events, uh, the, the experience of the Carter years, um, that I think opened up the possibility of Reagan's return and made also Reagan a more um, palatable choice for the electorate than he would have been 10 years earlier or even four years earlier. So when you say mad, you, you mentioned historical accidents. And um, I, I, Demir, I don't know if I'm making up this quote, but I seem to recall something where someone in a British accent <laughs> says, events, dear boy, events. Yes. Did I just no, imagine Harold, that? Harold Nichol no, Harold Nicholson, I think the British <laughs> statesman once said that. Good okay, to remember not, the accent, I'm, Shadi. That's important. Yeah, that <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to do like a proper British accent <laughs> on the air. But okay, so history, accidents, events. I don't know if you'll agree with this interpretation, but I came out of the book thinking to myself that out of all the people who have influenced the trajectory of the Republican Party, one of them is Osama bin Laden. That if nine eleven hadn't happened we could have imagined a fascinating counterfactual history of what the Republican Party would have been or could have become. And I don't know if you intended to emphasize that kind of dividing line. I certainly come at this with my own biases, and I am inclined to think of 9-11 as rather decisive in this regard. But it is really, there really is a stark reminder that before 9-11, Bush was a completely different president with a completely different set of objectives. He, um, he he was more of a foreign policy minimalist or realist and was very skeptical of ideological adventures abroad. And of course, he had much more of a domestic focus on what might be called compassionate conservatism. And he still did after 9-11. I mean, com compassionate conservatism didn't go by the wayside, but Bush himself became much more of a foreign policy president and saw himself that way. Um, and then, of course, the story continues that the Iraq war and its failures become decisive in how the Republican Party shifts towards a more, let's say, America first or even neo-isolationist view, where there is this profound skepticism about what the U.S. is capable, capable of abroad. And I'm just wondering, I mean, like how... How much do you think 9-11, and I'm sure that this was also important for you, I think we're more or less the same age or close, 9-11 and its aftermath was formative for me, being in D.C. in the early to mid-2000s, and I, I assume it was somewhat central to your political evolution as well. Oh, uh, for sure. Um, well, uh, a couple things about 9-11. Um, the first is that the um, elements within the Republican Party that uh, advocated uh, foreign policy restraint or even uh, neo-isolationism were already present there. I mean, in a way, uh, you, you allude to it, uh, Shadi, in, in, in your question by saying that, you know, pre-9-11 Bush was um, more of a realist. Um, he, you know, kind of disavowed nation building during the 2000 uh, campaign. Um, he was, in fact, under uh, heavy criticism in the first eight months of his presidency from uh, uh, institutions like the Weekly Standard, more hawkish institutions, over his um, defense budget and also the way in which uh, his administration handled the uh, spy plane incident with um, China in the spring of 2001. So those elements are always there. Um, but you're right, though, that 9-11 defined the Bush presidency, uh, and it defined it in, uh, again, unanticipated ways. Um, uh, Bush really did junk most of his domestic agenda. I mean, once, once he got No Child Left Behind passed, and then uh, the Medicare expansion passed, uh, he, it was not a very uh, forward-leaning um, domestic agenda, and it got even more screwed up in a second, as I'll detail. But um, he was mainly concerned with the wars that he that he started. 
in Afghanistan and uh, in Iraq, and then the global war on terrorism. And then, of course, uh, um, his freedom agenda of democracy promotion and advocacy of human rights. Um, Things could have gone differently, I think, had uh, a couple things happened. One, if there had been weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, uh, Bush says himself in his memoir, Decision Points, uh, that this completely undercut the entire rationale for the war in Iraq uh, when they never located the weapons. Um, two, if Bush had resourced the war in the ways in which uh, had been recommended to him um, by folks like General Shinseki, folks like Larry Lindsay, the economist, um, and which eventually he did change strategy and send more troops and stabilize the situation in Iraq. But in the interregnum, the situation got so out of control that it, um, I think, uh, not only undermined his presidency disastrously, but also began the shift on the right toward um, uh, restraint, toward um, uh, uh, a renewed realism, toward um, even neo-isolationism in some quarters. So, um, uh, there, there's a counterfactual in a variety of directions here. Um, having said all that, I do think even if 9-11 hadn't happened, uh, Saddam Hussein would have been an issue for Bush. Um, and the, the, the weapons programs, the fact that the sanctions regime uh, was um, coming apart at the seams, there would have been something with regard to Iraq that happened in Bush's first term. Um, but we just don't know what that would have looked like um, absent the 9-11 attacks. The, the, the contingency of events for me, uh, I mean, I, 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 I think that's right, that, that a lot of that would have happened. I mean, I think the one thing you keep coming back to in the book, uh, and maybe it's, it's worth rowing back in the book a little bit before we sort of get to current events. And I do want to talk about foreign policy uh, and and your opinions about it, because I think here, again, the three of us have interesting uh, overlaps and disagreements. But um, the, 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 the fascinating thing, which I absolutely agree with, and it's, I think it's played a lot of a role in the way of I've looked at, at history, is, is, is the end of the Cold War and, and the disappearance of communism. There's mm-hmm. that, um, there's, a, I think, a very powerful uh, thread that runs through your book that modern conservatism, as uh, as we all know it, as uh, you came up in the institutionalized conservatism, um, even even as you were coming up uh, in the '90s and and, and 2000s, um, was shaped by the kind of ideological consensus that the Cold War allowed uh, for conservatives to create. I would say the appearance of a wide tent, but that really did sort of provide a kind of ideas-based coherence to uh, what were, you know, forces that oftentimes didn't really cohere, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that mm-hmm. maybe more so than, than something like 9-11, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the collapse of, of communism that, that starts wreaking havoc on everything. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, um, 9-11 provided a false sense of consensus, I think, for yeah. a few years, right, to re- a, re- a restored consensus on foreign policy. Uh, that uh, just didn't last. But you're absolutely right to point to the centrality of communism in the formation of the post-war conservative movement. And um, communism not only united various factions on the right for different reasons, you know, traditionalists disliked communism's atheism and its war on the mediating institutions between the individual and the state. Libertarians hated communism's centralized economic planning. Uh, hawks, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, thought that the communists prov- uh, in the Soviet Union um, posed a threat to the to of global dimensions. Um, it was also uh, communism was important in an internal debate on the right about America's attitude toward international involvement. I mean, prior to the Cold War. Uh, the right had been uh, extremely reluctant to be, engage America overseas, uh, to intervene in foreign nations, to participate in uh, multilateral institutions and uh, agreements. Um, extremely 
disinterested in uh, Europe and its politics, much more focused on expansion in Asia and uh, commercial activity in the Pacific. Because of the Cold War, the threat of the communist um, power in the Soviet Union and in China, um, the right began to have a much more hawkish foreign policy to become much more engaged internationally, to believe in a large standing military establishment, to support free trade, uh, to grow the economies um, of uh, our new allies and thus insulate them from communism. Once the Berlin Wall falls in 1989 and the Soviet Union disappears in 1991, uh, that, uh, that kind of structure uh, is all, is, disappears as well. And so you have um, what I think I trace in the book, which is a reversion to the pre-Cold War, pre-World War II American right, uh, where you see it in um, ongoing debates over Ukraine, in debates over tariffs and strategic decoupling, and uh, of course in the general um, uh, opposition to uh, illegal immigration, certainly, but then other forms of legal immigration as well. But so let me just press you on this a little bit. I mean, even to Shadi's earlier question to you about where you're coming from. Um, you know, I, I've been reading you for years. Uh, and, and you know, as a sort of foreign policy hawk, a neoconservative, I, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, would you still identify yourself as, as that in foreign policy inclinations? Or, um, is, you know, uh, is that fair to say? I, I, I mean, I, with something else. I, no, well, you know, it, de it depends on what you know what that means. I, look, if you take a, a text like um, Charles Krauthammer's uh, 2004 Irving Kristol lecture, Democratic Realism, uh, I probably fall into the Democratic Realist camp, mm -hmm. which is Krauthammer's camp, as opposed to the school that he identifies as Democratic Globalism, which mm -hmm. was he he identified more closely with Robert Kagan. Um, so you know. Uh, is Charles Krauthammer considered a neoconservative? Yes. No, so yeah. I, no. to the degree that I'm in that tradition, I, I suppose I'm a foreign policy one too. I'm des definitely a domestic neoconservative. So sure. yeah, why not? I'll just own it. I'm a neocon. No, no, no. I'm proud of it. Nice. The reason it's interesting to me is, is um, and, and this is where I think Shadi and I, you know, come to blows insofar as we come to blows on a lot of this stuff is, is that, you know, one of the 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 things that that you know, when we talk about communism as a as a unifying other that organizes a lot of this stuff, it also does inject uh, a kind of coherent moral ballast to uh, to foreign policy. And it's interesting that you bring up Krauthammer because yes. I've I've gone back to to you know read the unipolar moment at least several times in the last few years. I've I've, I've found myself drawn back to that essay. And it's mm -hmm. striking to me how he has a certain pragmatism that I think is absent in what I think you're trying to distance yourself from in sort of traditional foreign policy neoconservatism. Um, well, where, yeah. yeah. I mean, it gets to kind of the complications, which is, um, you know, there's Gene Kirkpatrick neoconservatism, and then there's Bob Kagan neoconservatism. And Bob uh, of course, um, spent much of the 90s uh, critiquing Kirkpatrick and the earlier foreign policy neoconservatism. So I would say that I'm like, I, again, I, I'm probably more a Kirkpatrick Krauthammer neocon, someone who believes in American power, someone who believes in democracy and American power's role in advancing democracy and human rights, uh, but perhaps a little bit more um, circumspect about where exactly uh, military force ought to be applied. But so let me just push you on that, because, again, I think this is where it will be productive with Shadi uh, is is uh, um, stop Demir is how do we is how do we talk about about um, the role of, I guess, spreading democracy abroad? Um, right. And and and, you know, I mean, the reason I, I to just bring it back to the book um, and even what you guys were talking about, about the the sort of, you know, George W. Bush era and the the sort of, you know, since the Iraq war, the spring back to uh, this kind of more nativist tendency in and uh, among the right, certainly. Uh, but, you know, it has echoes on the left as well. Is, is this idea of, I think, um, a sense that that kind of idealism about 
um, changing the world was overreach. And in many ways that there's a sense that there's a broad reaction against that. And it's not just tied to democracy promotion. We can tie it to basically the whole uh, liberal economic agenda for the world, globalization. I mean, I think you see a reaction against all of that across the world in a lot of ways. But I mean, that's why I think that the, the communism fighting the enemy abroad setting up democracy as a universally exportable and uh, universal good. And there's a lot of reaction against that kind of, um, I don't know, almost reflex that seems to run past the Cold War and past the end of communism uh, that then sort of finds its its true, uh, I don't know, culmination in the, in the, in the, in the presidency of Donald Trump. Is that, is that fair? Uh, I guess I, I, there's a lot there, yeah. um, but I, I'd say, I guess a couple of things. Um, one is, um, again, as I try to say in the book, the more, um, just to take, say, Walter Russell Mead's terminology, the more Jacksonian and Jeffersonian elements within uh, the American right uh, are longstanding. Um, and uh, if Bush... Um, leaned more heavily toward the Wilsonian, say, uh, he still relied, I think, on Jacksonians uh, <laughs> to uh, to fight the wars, if nothing else. Um, uh, so, so why, what happened? Why did, why was the Bush administration's approach to democracy promotion discredited in the eyes of the American right and the, and the public more generally? Um, a couple things. One was uh, the ideas of democracy promotion and human rights became entangled with the military campaigns. So that is, there are two separate concepts, you know, democracy promotion and regime change by American military power. And yet with Bush, they become fused. And um, they become fused because uh, once the weapons were not found, uh, in his 2003 speech to the National Endowment for Democracy, Bush really begins shifting toward, we're fighting in Iraq for democracy. Um, and two, the wars uh, did not have satisfactory outcomes. Mm. Um, the, the Iraq, uh, many lives were lost, many more were people were wounded. Uh, eventually, some degree of stability was reached, uh, only then to be thrown into chaos again in 2011 when um, American forces were removed. Iraq, uh, Afghanistan goes on for 20 years and then ends in uh, calamity uh, last summer. Um, so uh, the, this association that the wars were somehow about democracy is then um, uh, uh, negatively charged by the unsatisfactory outcomes of those wars. I would look to a, uh, I'd look to a slightly different tradition, which is the Reagan tradition, which is the Reagan Westminster speech, where he talks about how you know democracy promotion is promoting the infrastructure of democracy, and he lists the whole things. He also says democracy is not just elections in that speech, um, and uh, of course Reagan, as I point out in the book, was relatively reluctant, um, certainly to deploy American ground forces. Um, he only did it twice. Uh, once it ended in disaster in Lebanon. The second time it ended much more successfully, but it was Grenada. Uh, and uh, so he was able to, I think, kind of shepherd or rather um, kind of uh, preserve that uh, 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 democracy promotions uh, uh, good name because it wasn't associated with um, a misadventure. And I've said... Um you know, full disclosure, um, and listeners may be aware of this. I think I've said it before on the podcast, um, and I say this half jokingly, but there's also a kernel of truth in it that my ideal foreign policy would be the Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. But of course, that complicates matters because it's unclear if there could have been a freedom agenda without mm -hmm. the Iraq war, that in some ways these were these were entangled and you can't really have, you know, you can't fashion. It's almost like saying, well, the, the rock war was a pretty big problem. So it does in some sense discredit a lot of the overall agenda. But I do want to like maybe shift a little bit on this point of why 
why conservatives or Republicans would have been skeptical about something like the freedom agenda. And what I sense in your throughout your book, and this is something that I took away from it, I don't know if you'd fully agree, there is this sort of darkness in conservative thought. And I mean that, you know, in a positive way, but also in a pejorative way, you can see it um, in, in both senses that there's a profound, I think, skepticism about human nature and what humans are capable of and the dangers of social planning, the dangers of idealistic adventures at home and also abroad. And clearly Bush did not share the latter skepticism. But I think it's it seems to me that it's deeper than that in reading your intellectual history that for the most part, conservatives perceive themselves as culturally weak in American society. They are they are never they never win culture wars, or at least very rarely do they. And they are not really prevalent in elite institutions, whether it's the bureaucracy, universities, the mainstream media, so on and so forth. So there's always a kind of agitation against whatever the status quo happens to be. And this animates the movement. And it it, it can obviously then spill into a kind of dark view about the way things are, because you're always fighting against something which seems very all-encompassing and powerful, which is this kind of liberal elite consensus. And I think you note a number of times in the book that this is why conservatives are oftentimes better at arguing than liberals are, because liberals don't really need to defend their ideas because they sort of take liberalism as self-evident, that this is simply just what rational, reasonable people come to believe. And so they're just not prepared to actually look at the first principles and analyze the first principles that lead to their own conclusions. Where conservatives, because they're always going against the tide, have to be ready to engage in intellectual combat. combat. But um, so, I mean, some of it's positive, but then you, you know, there is still going to be this sense that everything is going wrong in society, moral degeneration, that America is losing its soul. All of these themes seem to recur time and time again. So I wonder, and I suppose this isn't really a question. Well, it is. it will be a question in a moment, but <laughs> it's more just my analysis. And I'm just curious what you think about it. But one might argue that the kind of um, American carnage inaugural address of Donald Trump in 2017 is the natural, it's a logical conclusion of this sense of being opposed to America as it currently is. And inevitably, you end up at this very dark endpoint. Is there a way to avoid that? Well, um, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I would say that uh, the, that's clearly true. Your description is clearly true of the right over the last, say, 15 years. Not so true of the right um, in, you know, in the last uh, 30 years before that. Um, uh, I think there was a sense, um, in some ways, uh, 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 even during the Nixon administration that, you know, the, the right was kind of winning the culture war, that, that, uh, the right was on the side of the public when it came to issues such as Vietnam or the counterculture or the anti-war movement. Um, I think, um, the, uh, conservatism of Ronald Reagan, of Newt Gingrich in the 1990s and of George W. Bush was uh, pretty comfortable with America um, and, and felt that it was um, forward-looking, future-oriented, um, basically, you know, uh, not, um, not succumb had, hadn't succumbed to a declinist uh, uh, view of America or a, um, the temptations of despair. Um, uh, however, so having said that, uh, you're right to say that um, conservatism has had um, 
thinkers and figures who do uh, reach very pessimistic conclusions about the state of American society, about the American character, um, uh, uh, have also scapegoated um, uh, minorities, um, have um, had a, a temptation toward racialist arguments in some cases. I think that the fact, the relevant uh, fact for me is that for much of the post-war moment, so that is the, between the end of the uh, World War II and say, you know, even the Bush presidency, George W. Bush's presidency, those elements had been cabined off. They had been basically suppressed uh, within the conservative movement and the Republican Party more generally. Um, beginning with George W.'s second term, which it, just to link it up to our earlier conversation, uh, is connected with the downturn and the war in Iraq and then all the subsequent other disasters that befell the country during Bush's second term. Um, that ability of the conservative movement to kind of uh, to cabin off, to channel and redirect the elements of the American right that have this much more exclusionary, much um, more pessimistic, much more despairing much more negative attitude toward the country and its citizens uh, collapsed. And so um, it was in the breakup of the, um, of this conservative governing class is what I called, called it uh, in the book uh, that this, pi this picture of the darker American right that you're drawing shoddy uh, came into view. So I think there are, uh, there have been alternatives, um, but, um, because of changes in American society, politics, culture, technology, um, it's just impossible now to somehow uh, erect guardrails uh, within the conservative movement or the Republican Party. But going forward, and I, I take your point that there can't be guardrails and the darker, the darker conservatives will be part of the Republican Party going forward. But I, I do wonder that because conservatives are so weak in the culture now, and here I'm talking about, um, again, mainstream institutions, not necessarily the Supreme Court and other and, and, and state governments where Republicans still have a strong foothold, obviously, but when it comes to cultural production, it seems that for the foreseeable future, there's no obvious way for Republicans or conservatives to gain ground on cultural issues. So even think about um, the kind of the woke turn in corporations. There is maybe some sense that that's being neutralized a little bit with everything that's going on in Florida with Disney and the backlash. But generally speaking, the trend seems pretty strong that if we're talking about mainstream institutions, they are going to have some sort of liberal bias to one degree or another. And that seems to me to suggest that for the rest of our lives, let's say, that conservatives will all, will see themselves as opposed and in conflict with American culture writ large. And that can only lead to this darker orientation because that's what they're fighting. They see they see America going in this very dark direction, whether it's hyper-wokeness, no longer having clear, um, clear understandings of biology when it comes to uh, trans issue or traditional marriage and so forth. That I mean, do you feel like how how do you get away from that direction if liberals are so culturally dominant? Well, um, and I, I guess for whatever reason, differ from a lot of people on the right on these questions uh, of just how much does the cultural dominance of liberals matter that 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 question, because from a historical point of view, um, in some ways, liberals are less culturally dominant than they were, say, in I don't know, 1964, 1965. Um, we can't escape the fact that the conservative movement has made huge strides in the Republican Party, which had rejected it for about 30 years uh, after the 1932. Um, and in fact, 
we've gone beyond the conservative movement to the MAGA movement. And now we're going even beyond the MAGA movement to the ultra MAGA uh, people that uh, you see in some of these primaries. So, yeah. uh, so if let's just look at the political institution, I think, uh, and you even mentioned in the, in the States and in the Supreme court, the conservatives do have quite a bit of power. Um, the cultural institutions are a different story. And, uh, but from my point of view, the story really hasn't changed. I, um, you know, William F. Buckley Jr.'s first book published in 1951 was an attack on his alma mater for being too secular and too Keynesian. Um, Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind in 1987. Uh, so I think the right has always identified the university as, um, to quote J.D. Vance, quoting Richard Nixon, the enemy. Um, the liberal media hmm. uh, has been a... Uh, right boogeyman since act the aftermath of the 1964 election when the post-war conservative movement looked at the media's treatment of Barry Goldwater, calling him a Nazi, calling him a psychopath, and said, we won't be able to make any progress if we don't somehow critique the media and lessen its hold. I mean, just you know, I, I always get in trouble with my conservative friends when I say this, but just as an empirical fact, the right has such a, a, a loud voice today compared with the situation in 1964, right? I mean, the unbundling of media, the fact that talk radio exists, uh, which is a you know, product of a regulatory decision in the late 1980s, the fact of Fox News, and now, of course, all of the mega and ultra mega alternatives to Fox News, the fact that the most uh, dynamic Facebook posts are almost entirely those of conservatives um, can't be ignored. So, and then finally, so why are just, they so angry? Okay, through I, mean, so then <laughs> I don't, I mean, so I'll, I'll, I, they, one, th one reason is Shadi, they don't know the history. Okay. That's what mm. you, we, we started by asking, why did I write the book? One reason I wrote the book was that despite people saying they know the history in broad numbers, many younger conservatives in particular don't know the history. They think history began in 2012 or it began in 2016, right? That's just not the case. These are long running arguments and critiques of American cultural institutions. Um, just finally on the K through 12 point, I mean, I do think, uh, so here's another reason why they're angry. Uh, there's, uh, there, is, there was complacency in the conservative movement. There's no question about that. Um, that was visible um, uh, uh, beginning again, going back to George W's second term, you could already see with the movement of the reform conservatives and more elite driven intellectual attempt to revive conservative thought. Um, with the, the Tea Party provided populist energy, but the Republican Party as an institution and many conservative elites did not read what they wanted to in the Tea Party. They were they were willing to to use it, but they didn't really um, understand what was what was motivating it. And there was a great space that emerged between Beltway conservatives, of whom I am one, and uh, people in the populist grassroots conservatives throughout the rest of the country. And um, that um, that cocoon in D.C. I think uh, blinded a lot of people to what was happening. It also failed. It also prevented us from communicating, you know, just the nature of these problems and how long running they are and how, you know, it, it, this goes in waves um, and that even now we're beginning to fight back. I mean, I, I think that you just look, we mentioned DeSantis, we mentioned, uh, we haven't mentioned Glenn Youngkin. I think that, I think that their uh, conservatives are winning some of these battles now that they're engaged. Um, on on uh, on the woke curricula stuff. So whenever I say this, it always gets me in trouble <laughs> with conservatives because they're like, you don't realize how bad it is. I understand that it's bad, but I think I guess it's always been bad. Maybe that's what makes me a conservative. See, Matt, but I, also like I mean, Demir, just one second. Ahead, I just yeah. so that, and then this is just like a very small comment, and I and I'm I'm very sympathetic to the to the criticisms of the post-liberals or anti-liberals when they talk about all the problems that America is facing. Some of their diagnosis, I think, is is worthwhile and accurate. But I come back to this point that it's really not, like, 
when you talk about how bad America is, not you, but the post liberals or those who are more critical of of the status quo as as we know it today, like you don't live in an authoritarian regime. America is not a dictatorship. You have the freedom to criticize liberalism all you want. And there's actually a big audience for that, including me. And I and I, I find these debates really interesting and worthwhile. So I think what you're saying here, Matt, is just really important to underscore that this feeling of doom and gloom seems disproportionate to what the reality is. Like, you still have a considerable degree of freedom and you don't live under a Middle Eastern dictatorship. So it could be worse. Anyway, I just wanted well, but, to but say that. Even Matt, even before you just jump into that, because what you were saying was just really, I don't know, I, I, it was incredibly clarifying because it gets back to this question for me on the, the role of ideas in the conservative movement, which I do think you make a strong case for, you know, the importance of it. But I think even there, there's, there's this, you know, almost from the beginning of the conservative movement, not pre-war where your book starts, but, you know, in the, as the Cold War kicks off, there's, there's a reliance on the base um, and on, you know, uh, well, I mean, a certain kind of resentment, the darkness that Shadi is talking about. And then there's an intellectualizing of that that creates a framework and creates a professional political class and creates a movement that then affects political change and ideas play a role in that. But the sort of feedback loop with the base is, um, I mean, it's always there. As you said, like uh, it's the, the the worst parts are cordoned off. The the Birchites are, are pushed to the side by Buckley. I guess, I guess the interesting thing to me in all of this is it's even in the title of the book is, you know, it's the right. And yet the subtitle is the hundred year war for American conservatism. And I, I, I wonder if I can get you to talk a little bit about the distinction between what is the right and what is conservatism. One seems to me is, is the intellectual sort of superstructure and sort of the legitimation and the description of all this that nevertheless avails itself of, of these popular discontents very frequently. And the other is the sort of perennial thing that's always there. Maybe this darkness that Shadi's talking about. Is that, is, does that getting at something kind of? I guess the way that I think about it is um, the right is a very broad category of um, individuals, ideas, movements that don't have much in common except they, they are opposed to the left. That's it. And the right can encompass everyone from populists to conservatives, from um, uh, libertarians to authoritarians, from classical liberals to illiberals. When I talk about American conservatism, I'm referring to a narrower category, which is the uh, movement that emerges out of the Second World War, which, as you say, is a, it's a political movement. It um, has uh, credos. It has, you know, things like the Sharon Statement and Barry Goldwater's conscience of a conservative. Um, it's a tradition that is institutionalized. It comes to power in Washington with Ronald Reagan. But even um, Reagan's successors, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Newt Gingrich, found themselves operating within that, that tradition, that particular tradition of post-war American conservatism. And what made American conservatism unique was its Americanness. It's the adjective does a lot of work because the right in other contexts um, has sought to defend uh, institutions such as the monarchy, such as the established church, such as the titled nobility. And American conservatives have always thought of themselves not as defending any of those things, for the reason that you can't, we have none of them in America, but in defending uh, the American idea and American institutions as generated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so um, what American conservatism is to me is the continual defense of that political tradition uh, that has its origins in the founding and which is then um, kind of expressed again uh, beginning after the Second World War. The right is a much broader thing. And um, some of its 
uh, denizens are not motivated by ideas. Some are motivated by ideas that actually uh, reject the American Constitution, right? Re um, and reject limited government, uh, things that we normally associate with American conservatism. But what I'm trying to communicate in the book is that um, you, they're still part of the right, even though they're not American conservatives. They're still opposed to the left. There's still, uh, there's still challenges to the left. I, that, but that gets at, I think, really, and it, it, you really get at this at the later chapters. And you know, it's what I was getting at to sort of build on Shadi's comment just there is, is there's been a disjunct. And you, you get into it. I think it's the penultimate chapter when you talk about, you know, during the Trump era where the illiberals come up and, you know, there's American affairs, there's uh, there's Pat Deneen, there's there's Adrian Vermeule, there's Saurabh Amari. Um, and and there's a, 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 a hewing to an intellectual tradition, which, you know, I I increasingly am less hesitant to say it is un-American and unconservative, ultimately. And, and, you know, in, this, in the question then becomes almost like a triangle, right? You have the GOP, the party, you have American conservatism, of which you, you, I think you count yourself uh, as, a, as a member of that tribe, and then you have the right as it's now sort of coming up. And I take your point that American conservatives broadly belong to the right and maybe, but there's a fight over maybe that, that political institution and this question of whether the right whether there's that much overlap between the right and conservatism in many ways. I mean, what it's the right has become radical in a way. It's not conserving. It is a revolutionary force now in American politics, almost opposed to, as you said, many sort of tenets of American conservatism. Well, I think I, I think that is true in some quarters in the Republican Party. But I would say that it's definitely true in the intellectual space. Um, the the the, the post-liberals or illiberals are very visible online, and much of our political discourse is conducted online among the very online. I'm still looking at how their views are seeping into Republican politics in general. You can see it. There's no question. Um, the fact that Josh Hawley is penning an op-ed for Saurabh Amari's online magazine, Compact, which doesn't call itself conservative, which I think quite importantly calls itself a radical American journal, um, is revealing. But I would just say that Senator Hawley is one of 50 Republican senators. Now, he may be joined and most likely will be joined next year by J.D. Vance, who I think does belong on the right and um, uh, and is less interested in that tradition of post-war American conservative uh, thought that I outlined. Then he would be, they would be two of, I don't know, maybe let's give Republicans a good year and say 54. Um, so it's a distinctive view, uh, and it seems to be a growing view, but still of much. It's still a minority, a minority of the institutional Republican Party. So I, I always want to keep that in perspective. Um, uh, I do think that there is a ceiling, the appeal of views that just reject America. That 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 don't think America is a force for good, uh, that think that America is hopelessly corrupt or the equivalent of living in an authoritarian state, like Shadi was saying, um, and who reject the Constitution and the Declaration. I don't think you're going to get very far as a political force. You do seem, though, to be attracting a lot of adherents among young people in particular who are looking for frameworks to explain the world around them. Um, and that, I think, is where the you know, the debate needs to be joined at the intellectual level um, between the conservatives and between um, the right or the post-liberal right. But what's striking about your book is that, you know, you even sort of start uh, in the opening chapter uh, describing how all the institutions, 
you know, not just figuratively uh, through Trump, but but physically, right? Uh, the the building that housed the Standard and AEI is just no longer there in D.C. And, and and you know, I mean, the institutions have either closed down or migrated to different places. But there's, I think, at the core of it, I, I maybe again, correct me if I'm wrong, a nervousness about the ability of traditional American conservatism to mount that kind of intellectual challenge. Um, I mean, again, I, I, I take your point and I 100% agree that there's a, a hard limit to, um, uh, to anti-American ideas. And again, in the sense that Americanism is a kind of classical liberalism, and yet still it is gaining adherence. And yet still, even on the right, you know, you talk to younger people. I've made it my, my, my mission in, in a small way in working in a center-right magazine to really pull young people that we bring on away from that sort of stuff to, you know, inculcate in them and how that's a, very much an intellectual dead end. Yet the pull is there and and mm-hmm. and it's there. You see it in a sort of conservative in, in movement conservatives even. Right. I mean, CPAC is 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 sort of overtaken by this sort of stuff at this point. So, I mean, are you nervous about that? Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't. I, I, uh, I don't like the idea that American conservatism uh, could could have been kind of a passing phase. Um, I also think that it's, it, it, you know, it can't be a passing phase because it there's it connects it's connected in some ways deep ways to the American political tradition, to the idea of constitutionalism, limited government, uh, individual liberty. Uh, uh, Those are important things. They they are what make America exceptional in my view. And so, uh, yes, I'm extremely worried. And I wonder why, what is it drawing young men in particular to these radical philosophies? Um, well, one, I think is they're the only, they they offer a way in which to, to view the world. Um, two, they provide a sense of community, which is very important. Um, and three, the alternative hasn't, it, it isn't really expressed in a way, I think, that that um, reaches these young people where they are, right? I mean, it can be, and I'm as guilty as this as anybody, it can be expressed in a, in a more kind of detached, elevated, you know, not, I'm not putting on airs. I mean, just mean like abstract kind of, you know, beltway oriented concerns, right? I'm concerned about public policy and what the Republican Party is doing and uh, foreign policy. And um, that's not really what's animating young people who are, who are kind of, uh, they're experiencing every day these kind of culturally liberal woke institutions and they're, they want to fight it. Um so uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think this debate needs to be joined, and it needs to be done in a way that uh, reaches young people where they are. Um, but but maybe this gets at a more fundamental concern that post liberals or the radicals, their views are just simply more compelling at a base. So I mean, look, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, Matt. So you say constitutionalism, limited government. Those things are nice and important, but are they compelling? Like when you when we say them, I think that we're almost struck by they just sound a little bit, they don't sound particularly fresh. They don't sound bold. They just sound like banal things that people have sort of just assumed for a very long time. And I think it's hard to compel young folks who are disillusioned and angry by telling them come back to the constitution or to tell them come back to limited government. And I have to say, as someone who is heterodox, but vaguely left of center, if I had to choose between the kind of old Republican party that's more business oriented, it's about limited government, it's got a libertarian streak. And then compared to the new let's say the new right, which is more about economic populism and identity and emphasizing culture war, I would probably, if I was a young person who was just sort of choosing between different options, I would probably be more tempted by the latter because it speaks in a fundamental way to what people are animated by. And and I just, I wonder if it's compelling for a reason because it's more compelling, like not to be tautological about it, but what if what if the views of traditional conservatism just simply 
don't offer enough at our present moment because something about the current moment has shifted. Well, I, you know, it just strikes me as funny because conservatives have never been associated with the words fresh, bold, or, uh, you know, contemporary. That's why we're conservative. Um, so, uh, I, you see, you recognize my dilemma here. Um, uh, look, I would put it this way. I think the future of the American right has to have some synthesis of the conservatism I espouse and these new forces that uh, are tempting you, Shadi. Uh, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and that's precisely the point of my book is that for much of the history uh, I write about, the populists, the new rights in their various ways, have worked with the conservatives, have been in a coalition, sometimes a competition, sometimes a fight, but often working in tandem. Whereas in recent years, um, it's not coalitional, it's sectarian. Um, and mainly, maybe that's because the conservative establishment, the conservative governing class was out of touch. It was stale. But um, I don't think we can just junk the constitution, limited government, civil society, individual freedom. Um, uh, I, I mean, that, that to me is, uh, that's a threat to American democracy to do that. Um, and well, so- Well, well what know, if it I, just so happens I, to be the case? Mm. Well, it can, oh, I mean, if I it happens to be the, the case- democracy question. Which part? That what if it just happens to be the case that Republicans are no longer a small D Democratic Party? What if Republicans by and large are not committed to the democratic idea. And I mean this in the more minimalist sense, I'm not talking about liberal democracy as the more substantive package. I'm talking about simply respecting democratic outcomes that are not to your liking. I do wonder if the Republican party today can legitimately be considered a small D democratic party. Well, I think in the aftermath of the Georgia primary, um, I, I wouldn't rule out hope uh, that um, that the Republican Party can still respect the outcome of elections and won't be bullied into overturning the results of elections they don't like. So I agree with you that the you know the jury is still out, um, but I, I don't think all hope is lost. Um, the fact is is that the attempt to overturn the 2020 election failed, um, and the subsequent attempt by the architect of, of the attempt to overturn the election to somehow uh, purge the party of uh, the people that uh, most stymied him has, has not gone exactly according to plan. So um, I, I, I think there's still hope there from a conservative perspective. Uh, if I'm wrong, then uh, I think new alliances need to be considered. You know, I mean, uh, one thing I do in my book is trace how many people kind of fall in and out of this larger story of the American right. And that's clearly going on today. And um, it, it will continue to. But how is it that a movement that was supposed to be tied to the Constitution and sees that as part of its heritage could so quickly? I mean, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the polls and I, I don't take them at face value, but let's say I think it's fair to say there is a problem. So various surveys say that 70, you know, 60 to 70% of Republicans think that there was fraud in the 2020 election, that Trump didn't actually lose, that, you know, shenanigans happened that led to an outcome not to their liking, i.e. Biden winning. Now, I'm tempt I'm I'm sympathetic to the view that they might tell pollsters they don't respect the democratic outcome because that's how they signal their disappointment or their opposition to the status quo. And they don't really mean it in the fullest sense, because if they did really mean it, they'd be out in the streets protesting, because what could be more devastating than the end of democracy as we know it? But let's just let, but let's take let's take for granted that there is at least some problem and there is some discomfort with democratic outcomes in this in this foundational sense. I mean it just you do get you do talk about previous episodes where conservatives don't seem to be very enamored by the idea of the masses voting and and William F Buckley is someone who generally had this suspicion and one might 
one might wonder to what extent he was fully committed to small d democracy. And that, that is a tension that you, you allude to, but we don't have a definitive answer on that. But it does seem to be a trend that is submerged in the conservative tradition that comes up every now and then, which is sometimes the masses are wrong and sometimes voters are wrong. And there are these eternal transcendent truths that should supersede the will of the majority. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few elements in what you have just um, outlined there. I mean, one is a kind of conservative critique of majoritarian democracy, uh, which is longstanding um, and um, is true. Um, or, I mean, it's just true as a descriptive um, uh, description of, of the conservative views of, you know, 50 plus one majoritarian rule. Um, the second thing is uh, belief that there was fraud in the election or, you know, Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Um, and there I share with you the skepticism toward the, you know, the, the meaning of these polls. You know, um, I think the Georgia Democratic nominee for governor, Stacey Abrams, recently got herself into trouble again by saying that she still believes she won the 2018 election. Um, I think Hillary Clinton has recently said as well that she won the 2016 election. And we know that many, many Democrats think that um, Al Gore won the 2000 election. So the question then becomes, you know, what do you do about it? Um, and uh, it, where I draw the line and continue to draw the line in the face of many uh, people on the right um, is uh, you don't engage in a cockamamie plot to reverse the election <laughs> that somehow involves different slates of electors and Mike Pence engaging in a, you know, uh, uh, or being asked to engage in just a frankly unconstitutional act. Um, that, that I think was distinctive and that I'm happy to say failed. And so that is what I'm worried about. I'm less worried about the polls. Um, though the polls may reveal support for future attempts to overturn the result. Um, but I, what I want to watch is, is that attempt made again? Um, and um, I, I just don't know the answer to that. Well, Matt, I, I, uh, I really just, thanks for joining us. I think this has been a, a, a really rich discussion. Um, I, I really commend your book to, uh, I mean, certainly not just conservatives, but I think it's a very good point that you make that it's, it's an incredible resource for young people conservatives, young people on the right to really get a sense of the history of the movement and uh, all the, the the strains that run through it. But I think it's a it's a really important book for for very much a, a general readership that's trying to to grapple with the current moment. Uh, so, you know, thanks so much for joining us and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you both for thanks, a, a really interesting discussion. Yes, uh, uh, we could go on and on. You'll just have to have me back uh, for future episodes of my uh, my favorite podcast, Wisdom of Crowds. Oh, thanks a lot, Matt. <laughs> awesome. Talk soon. Thank, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.